Welcome to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. It's a weekly show that goes out over YouTube and as a podcast over all of the major channels. And each week I get to sit with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and share it with all of you. This week is no different. I'm joined by Crystal Eisinger. Yay! Yay! We know each other quite we well, do. actually. So this is this is a, an absolute pleasure and privilege for me. Um, I'll give Crystal the customary introduction. Uh, she started uh, life out uh, in London and uh, went on to a series of internships at Lombard, uh, The Economist, Anglo-American. Uh, had a gap year which took her into a, uh, a stint at Deloitte. I think it was Monitor Deloitte, right, at the, at the time. Yeah. Uh, is currently a, um, a, a self-styled magic maker and marketing strategy and operations lead at Google which is how we know each other, yeah. uh, had several roles at Google, so we'll talk about that. Also a Marketing Academy Scholar, uh, a podcaster, and a pretty frequent speaker on the circuit. Impressive uh, range of trophies, you must have a very big trophy cabinet from last year. Management today is 35 women under 35, the drums 50 under 30 outstanding women in creative and digital, and the uh, Wackle Future Leaders Award, uh, all uh, accumulated last year. Uh, now a co-host on the Greater Than 11% panel show, which is a podcast, I'll link it below. And um, I encourage you to uh, listen to that. It's got some, uh, some great material and we'll talk about that a little bit. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks, Craig. So nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> feels very, um, feels very... Strange to hear me described as an inspiring person on your podcast. Well, you are an inspiring person. Thanks. And and uh, and let's do full full disclosure because we actually work together. We do. You were my boss. You're I, not anymore, though. I'm not your boss anymore, but we uh, we have a a, a long direct uh, working relationship, and um, I found I found you to be absolutely inspiring. So I definitely wanted you to tell your story here. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. So let's roll back the clock. Uh, and talk to me about your experience coming through school. I know you, you had really good in, encouragement from your parents and your family unit. Yes. Yeah, I did. Um, school was so important to me in a variety of ways in that I really was that child who kind of like skipped to school. And I remember I used to, like the day before term started, I'd like go to sleep in my uniform because I was like so excited to like go to school the next day. It's quite sad. Quite sad. Yeah. Um, but... I think the thing that was so magical about the school that I went to was that everyone could be the best at something. And I say that to this day when people come and say like, oh, what school should I send my child to? I mean, I don't have children, so I don't really have a, a horse in the race. But what I do say was great about my education was that everyone could be the best at something. There was such a breadth of things that you could do. And I think it's so important to feel that pe for people to feel like they can be the best at something in their environment. And, and my school really cultivated that. And also, for me, my education was a really precious commodity. It's something that I really valued. My God, my mum in particular really told me to value that education and made it very clear how hard they had to work to make the, you know, the school fee payments, which was really, really hard. Um, and I think as a result, I felt such a strong responsibility to really enjoy it, really make the most of everything. And kind of squeeze out the ROI from being there because you know my dad um my dad's a builder my mum works at the airport both of them like paying our school fees was um really hard it's for them deal, yeah. really big deal for them you know it involved a lot of doing overtime to extra shifts extra work to make those payments 
Um, but they did that because they wanted to give us a start that they didn't have for themselves. Um, and that was the best thing that they could do. You know, I understand other, for other people that might be spending the time with their children to help teach them through it or coach them um, or, you know, whatever it might be. But for, for my parents, it was um, sending um, my brother and I to private school. And so I think that kind of was really instilled to value that and treat it as something that was precious and something that we were lucky to have. Um, from an early age and so I probably then made the most of it. But I was actually really shy at school. I don't know whether you know this about me. No, I don't. Um, I can't mention that actually. You very kindly introduced me as like a speaker on the circuit, which is funny because when I was at primary school, uh, my mum, uh, well I remember very distinctly the teacher, my English teacher, Mrs Stanley Carroll, asked me to recite Wordsworth's daffodils in front of the class. And you know the old Victorian desks which have like the trays in I literally put my head like inside quite new the desk. when I was at school. <laughs> new age, jam board, <laughs> like type desk. Whoa, this thing has got so many features you can lift the lid. <laughs> Open the kimono on the, on the desk. Um, but I remember being just so terrified and not wanting to... You put your head inside I put the my head inside the desk. <laughs> And um, my mum, because she is a brilliant, smart, amazing woman, forced me into doing debating and public speaking. And I would say, above everything else, that is the thing that's kind of stood me in, in the best stead throughout school, university, everything, because my ability to kind of like construct an argument, you know, I have very strong opinions loosely held, like I can construct an argument very quickly, the art and, you know, feeling confident speaking in public is a craft that you can learn and teach yourself. And I think it, the reason I bring it up is I think it, it speaks to a foundational belief of mine, which is that you can like, you can do anything if you work hard enough at it. Like I wasn't a natural public speaker. I wasn't naturally confident. Um, it was something that I worked at because, you know, my mum told me to. <laughs> and it also really paid off and it actually became the thing that I did a lot of. Like I did a lot of debating competitions and public speaking and really enjoyed it, yeah. um, but it was like very formative uh, at that point in my life. Very formative, yeah, I did a bit of debating myself yeah. uh, at, at school and uh, at, at university as well, and uh, that, that was uh, helpful when, I mean, my first career I was a, I was a barrister, yeah. right, so, and that's all about forming. Yeah, our one-to-ones are basically debating competitions, aren't they? Uh, they're, well, they're, yeah, they're, they're sort of constructive um, ideation. But I think uh, we're both like that, though, like, we'll both put an argument forward to see where it goes, not because yeah. we necessarily believe that thing. You want Often a pressure tester, right? Yeah, exactly, so yeah. I think, that, but that's why I think they're quite fun, it's fun to work with each other, because... Is that the arguments are rarely like personal? They're just like it's an intellectual assessment exchange, yeah, exchange yeah. and then you know, it's, you know, whatever the outcome is. Absolutely kind of agree. Yeah. Well, what a what a wonderful experience at school, and you you folks are, are great. I've met both of you them. You have. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so uh, you've got in your LinkedIn title the wonderful description, ma uh, magic maker, which I actually think is very accurate in, in, in my experience. One of the great strengths that I've seen you um, show and, uh, and execute on a number of occasions is change management. And you, I know you have a particular sort of philosophy that's formed over the years. Can you talk about that? Yes, I would love to. So um, I actually only recently added Magic Maker to my LinkedIn uh, profile because Chris, my husband, actually described me as a magic maker the other day, um, and I was like, actually, you know, that's a really, that's a really nice way to explain 
that often I think the impact that I have on something is quite difficult to quantify, but I thought that was a really nice way of feeling it, so I put it on there. And as a result, since then, my mum like really took the piss out of me. She was like, what even is that? Did Google know that you put magic maker in your title? And I was like, mum, it's not a title. You know, you can be like podcaster, writer, author, head of strategy and operations, whatever it might be. So um, recent edition, testing it out, <laughs> may not be there when this goes live. It's very evocative, I love it. Um, and yeah, so I do have a particular view on, on change um, management and really like strategy, I guess. And this came from my experience as a strategy consultant, whereby some of my earliest projects were big retail analytics projects. Mm -hmm. So I think you know this already, but one of my earliest projects when I joined Deloitte as a graduate was uh, I was flown out to Australia, your favorite country, and- Almost. <laughs> your second favorite country, and um, uh, I was I was working for Target, which is a big um, a big retailer out there. I was I describe it as a kind of hybrid of like M and S and Next, somewhere in between M and S Next and TK Maxx, somewhere in between that. Um, anyway, we did this really big retail analytics project, and what this means is that we would take all of the data that the the retailer had, of which there's lots, hundreds of thousands of SKUs, lots of different prices, lots of different stores online. And um, we, one of the projects we did was creating a markdown model. So rather than each of the merchandisers having to work out like what price they should sell an individual item of clothing or how much stock they should buy, we created this tool that would tell people what the right price was, how much to order, um, which would be linked into the supply system. But actually what you see is that um, you can create the most incredible tool in the world that does everything that all of the execs want to do. But actually the people on the ground, the buyers and merchandisers, will still use the Excel spreadsheet that they got given on their first training course when they joined Next or M&S, and they work on that spreadsheet because it's got the formulas in there that they like and they trust, yeah. and they're not going to use your system. And so what I witnessed when I was there was that you know we were typical consultants in this literal glass box at the front of the office where only really the C-level would kind of come in and chat to us, We've seen as the clever people in the glass box. I'm sure you've been that person many times. And um, within that, I just saw this big problem in that companies were spending so much money with us um, and we were creating these great solutions. And then what would happen is these projects would run into the ground because the um, execs were bought into it, but people on the ground didn't believe in it, didn't yeah. really understand why. And I think through my nature, you know, I'm kind of talkative. I actually just got to know all the people in the office. I ended up sitting out on the floor with the buyers and merchandisers. I went on kind of, I went every weekend, I would go to a different store in Target around Australia because I didn't know anyone there. And I just went and walked around all the stores, really got to know the product and got to know the people and, and asked them like why they did the way the, the things they did the way they did. I think often there's an assumption with strategists, strategy consultants that people are doing things because they're dumb or because they're lazy or because yeah. there's like an inefficiency. So the starting point that I think it's really important to kind of go from is like always assuming good intent and that people are trying their best. And it's the role of strategy and operations professionals like us to understand why people aren't using that thing or doing the things in the way they, that we want them to. Yeah. Our example in our life might be why aren't people using our 
you know, CRM system that we think does everything for us. And we could get really annoyed about it and just keep forcing the same thing down people's throat. Or we can say, what is it that makes that's creating this resistance? Is it fear? Are you worried that this thing is going to supersede you and mean that you're going to be out of a job? Do you not understand it? Do you feel silly for asking? Often it is a combination of just like fear, yeah. admin or vulnerability. Yeah. And that's how I like, to, that's, I kind of prickle a bit when you say change management because I'm not a change management professional. I've got no qualifications in it and I don't know anything formally about it, but I do know about people and how people like to be understood. And I think that's often missing in a lot of the work that happens in strategy and operations, like fundamental empathy and thinking about, you know, take out the word strategy and replace it with behaviour change, because yeah. that's ultimately what you're trying to do. What's your What's your line, you know, like strategy that has no, that drives no behaviour change is as useful as a chocolate teapot? Yeah, you have something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the kind of the magic formula or the way that I like to think about putting together a programme um, and, and these, this formula sits on top of the brilliant basics, right? Good training, clear infrastructure, clear tools, clear roles and responsibilities. On top of that, there are three kind of sources of inspirations that I draw from. One is um, spark joy in everything that you do. I think as strategy and operations professionals, we are also slightly guilty of calling things like version two, you know, uh, check-in, update, you know, these things that really don't spark joy. So I love taking inspiration from Mary Kondo, Japanese um, kind of life coach guru, who says, disregard everything that does not spark joy. So I encourage people when they're thinking about communications, when they're thinking about trying to get that merchandiser or buyer or salesperson to do something differently, think about how you're going to spark joy. Do you know how many emails um, the average worker in the UK gets? Per day? Per day. 100? 125. There you go. Exactly. So, so if people are getting 125 Stop emails a day... Stop sending emails. <laughs> don't send emails. However, this is unlikely to happen. So if you want to make sure that your email gets read, then spark joy with that email. Think about what would make somebody want to open yours and take action on it above others. Often the content of what you're including isn't going to change, but the way that you try to capture attention is really important. Something that I ask people to reflect on is that I think today, or if you wake up in a given morning, you are constantly being communicated to and asked to behave in a particular way through, um, you wake up in the morning and you read an article on The Guardian. You get to the bottom of the article, they say, hey, do you want to donate? Do you want to like contribute to our quality of journalism? So you're getting a message towards you. You might go on Instagram. All of the ads that you're seeing there are being targeted at you to help to, so that you do something with that information. You walk out and you see out-of-home advertising, again, you're being communicated to. So why do we think that when we're doing internal communications, that like sloppy, low emotional intelligent communications that don't spark joy is gonna cut it? Because there are hundreds of thousands of other messages trying to get through to a person at a point in time. And, you, and we have to be as good as the Coca-Colas or whoever else it is on deliveries in uh, trying to speak to you on Instagram to get that cut through because ultimately people have a choice with their time they're on different screens they can respond to your email they can look at what they're going to have for dinner or do tonight. something else yeah, do something exactly. Else. yeah exactly. it's a noisy place isn't it, it is a I heard this uh, stat that we receive more information in a single day than our medieval ancestors did in a year so it really is an attention economy uh, it's easy to reach people but hard to grab their 
the heart and your mind yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I love that. Attention economy is, yeah, is spot on. Um, yesterday I was at a conference and they said that in the 70s, uh, people would be would see or interact with ads, advertising, up to 500 times in a day. And that number is now 5,000. Wow. So I completely agree. And, you know, 90% um, of what the information that we take in is visual. And I think it's something like 40% of our body's at-rest calorific consumption is processing what we take in through our eyes. Right. So it's actually quite exhausting all yeah. the time yeah. to be given this information. Often when I do, when I'm lucky enough to be invited to give a talk, I give people a minute meditation, ask them to close their eyes. Because during the day, we don't really do that. Before the talk. Before the talk. Oh, right. um, just to give your body a rest, because so much of what you see is is exhausting for your body. Yeah. So, um, so spark joy. Spark joy, yeah. To um, succeed in the attention economy, step one. Step two is about being more pirate. Um, and so, really what this means is... We've been a credit uh, Sam Connor for this, eh? We've, I was going to say, are there any... I don't think we've got pirate any, pictures. You've got here. a skull on your... I've got a skull, there you go. Be More Pirate. Yeah, exactly. So the concept of Be More Pirate came from, exactly as you said, the author, speaker, coach, change maker, however you want to describe him, Sam Connor. I'll link the book below. It's a great book, worth yeah. reading. Yes, completely. I think I bought the book for you, didn't I? You did. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, the summary of it, as the title suggests, is how you can go about being more pirate and breaking rules, and it really... Um, teaches us that there are some really wonderful things that we can learn from pirates. Um, one of which is pirates were really amazing at branding. They came up with the skull and crossbones right. hundreds of years before Coca-Cola. Different versions. We sort of think of a, a classical version, but there are lots of different versions. Definitely. Yeah. But everybody knew that what the skull and crossbones represented, right. whatever that version that took, everyone know that, knew that that would mean yeah. pirates coming. Trouble. Surrender or die. That is the, you know... And so before, you know, the glass Coca-Cola bottle that made Coca-Cola seen as the kind of best advertiser in the world for a long time came along, there were the pirates who created an amazing brand for themselves. Um, but really, for me, what I love about the book is it's about courage. It's about what, what would happen if you say, if you speak up? What would happen if you ask the question that you're worried about asking? And when you get to a place where you're asking questions or saying things that feel uncomfortable and that you feel like you might be on the cusp of losing your job, then you're doing it right. Then that's the right thing to do. You know this all the time. <laughs> you're like, that's why you're such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so being testing more, the boundaries. Testing anyway, yeah. the boundaries. Weaponizing storytelling. Weaponizing that is what, storytelling. That is what Sam talks about in the context of the pirates yeah. and the skull and crossbones and the flag and their brand identity. Um, and everything that they came to kind of to stand for. And so weaponizing storytelling is, for me, another core part of strategy, right? Ultimately, you can, uh, you can, command, you can command people to do something or you can tell a story. Renee Cariol, actually another brilliant um, author of a book called Spike, um, he says, managers, managers do strategy, leaders tell stories. Mm, interesting. So it's the same thing, right? This is the same message, yeah. but it's the way that you tell it, weaponize that storytelling, take people on that journey. I think we do that through, I think that's why customer 
success is so important because yeah. that's our story to there are vehicles for brilliant amazing stories about growth um so weaponize storytelling be more right take the risk because you know have you ever fired anyone for saying something that's uncomfortable like saying something challenging the status quo um no no what what what's the worst that could happen if someone came to you with a point of view that you disagreed with violently I just disagree with it, um, but uh, you know, if you hire good people, you expect that. I mean, I would expect that I would be um, somewhat disappointed if we didn't have uh, a sparky exchange because you're not really pressure testing uh, the idea or the problem or you know testing uh, testing testing the boundaries, which is a function of um, well, it's a it, it's a it's a process of innovation, isn't it? Completely, yeah. Um, and actually, one of the things that I've spoken a lot about in the context of Be More Pirate is it sounds amazing to talk about breaking rules and being pirate and kind of what leads me on to the third point of this magical formula is is actually it takes a lot of vulnerability and resilience and Brene Brown defines vulnerability by saying vulnerability is when you feel uncertain, uncomfortable and at risk. Yes. And none of those things feel good. Yeah. We can read out lists of our accomplishments and talk about the, the great things that we've done, but we all know that in the times where it's felt like you're really trying to make change, you feel fucking terrified and you think, maybe I'm going to lose my job, maybe people are going to think I'm stupid. And, you know, there are the times where you go to bed worrying about it, feeling anxious, and we need to kind of be real when we say, it's, it's easy to, like, see these Instagram posts, like, be bold, like, say what you think, take risks, and... Sometimes it feels exhausting and it requires a lot of vulnerability. So the third thing is really around being vulnerable. And the courage. Yeah. And courageous, yeah. 100%. And the, you know, Ginny Rometty, the IBM CEO, I think she's a CEO. Yep. Her quote, which I is pinned up on my fridge and I think about every day, is that growth and comfort rarely coexist. Growth and comfort rarely coexist. It's a nice one. Yeah, because I think... It, it helps you to reframe, the, on the worst day where you feel uncomfortable, it feels really hard, it helps you to reframe that discomfort as growth. Yeah. And sometimes that's like the best thing that you can do. Is this interview feeling uncomfortable enough for you? Sufficiently uncomfortable? Yes. Okay, good. Excellent. I'm doing my job. So to recap on the thing, it's, you know, spark joy. Yes. Um, be more pirate. Weaponize storytelling. And... Be vulnerable and understand what that means. It's not this kind of highly triumphant, glamorous feeling. It can feel horrible. Let's be honest about that and help other people when they're in that situation. Yeah. Well, you you uh, you gave the uh, qualification at the start that you you don't see yourself as a change management no. expert and you have no qualifications. I beg to differ. <laughs> uh, I think that's an absolute masterclass in getting stuff done. Uh, that's hard and meaningful. Uh, and I've seen you do it uh, on the ground here at Google, uh, and uh, it's something to behold. So um, Thanks, that's, a, that's a little bit of gold right there. <laughs> let's let's change gears. Mm -hmm. Actually, one story I've heard you tell, which I think is worth worth repeating here, is how you got the job in Google. I'm asked this question a lot, right? And I'm sure you are. How do you get a job in Google? Yeah. How did you get the job in Google? I got the job at Google through a random LinkedIn post. Mm -hmm. um, I had decided that I wanted to leave 
I decided that I wanted to leave consulting and had just interviewed at a lot of different places. And then, um, and I've been, I, I'm actually, I love interviews, I'm good at interviews. Um, and it was actually, it's, I think interviews are one of the fastest ways for you to work, find out whether you like somewhere or not. Because it's a really expedited way for you to meet people and get a sense of like what being in the building is like. And, um, so, yeah, that's the kind of official, official version. <laughs> the official version. The official version. That was my story as well. I got, I got through a random LinkedIn. Really? Yeah, like, thank you, LinkedIn. Thanks, LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. Um, we should be sponsored by LinkedIn, shouldn't we? We should, yes. <laughs> hmm. Owned by, Microsoft. yeah, Microsoft, okay. I think um, it's a wonderful platform, actually. I really do. I agree. Um, so I think on getting a job, I was thinking about this because I think in my subconscious mind, I thought you might ask me about this. Um, a few kind of thoughts on this. One is getting a job at Google. I know you've said this to other people, so I'm just going to play back what great advice that you've given. Is that it can be a, it can be a case of like right place and right time. So keep applying for things. Um, spend time trying to understand our organisation. It's ridiculously complicated, like a lot of multinational corporations are. So the more you can understand. What, what's behind the job description, the better. Um, but if you don't get a role, if you don't get your role first time, expect that. Go in expecting that and see this as a good experiment. And um, trust that like, if it's the right fit, something will come through eventually. I think my advice would be don't apply to Google. Don't apply to Google if you're in a hurry to get your new job. Okay, that's Because good. I think it puts you in a bad... I think when... You, I think if... I think that our process, which is extremely like thorough and world revered, does also take time. And I think when you're at the other end, constantly waiting, if you're looking at watching your email on a day by day, hour by hour basis for that response, it's going to be a really unpleasant experience for you. Yeah. Um, and I've seen that with people. So I always say, like, if you want to get, a, if you want your next job quickly, apply to Google as one of many applications that you do. Because yeah. when you're hanging on that one, it's not a nice yeah. experience. And chip away. The other thing I, I would say is uh, be proud and bold about who you are and what you do outside the formal education and uh, work experience. You know, we classically sort of revert to talking about what we've done from a functional point of view, where we've studied, what quali qualifications we've got, actually, um, you know, we, uh, we assess, we try to assess anyway, the character of somebody, which is often shown more vividly in what they, what they do for fun outside work than, than it does um, uh, show inside. Definitely. And I think two things that you can do to help with that specifically is, one is kind of the Simon Sinek kind of TED talk, which is start with the why. Think, yeah. Do a lot of work on thinking about like why you are interested in what you are, why you are how, who you are. Um, because that will then help you use it as a filter for the different opportunities that you take up, right? Rather than just like going for a job at Google at all costs, think about like why it is that you're interested, who it is that you are, how you want to show up. Secondly, an exercise that I really highly recommend is really spending the time investing and thinking about your values. Um, there's some really good exercises to do this on the Amazing If podcast and the Squiggly Careers um, templates around this but if you think about what your values are also what your strengths are coming to an interview being able to talk about what your superpowers are what your strengths are so much more interesting and and your why like if if I went to an interview I would talk about my approach to thinking about organizations yeah. I can give you 
dozens of examples about how I've made that happen, the what, but if you really get clear on articulating your why, it will be a much more kind of fun experience and edifying experience for everyone. So do invest in yourself, invest in much time, as, invest as much time in preparing that as you do in understanding the company that you're employing. 100%, for. and the why, the why is so important because it speaks to your passion, and it's very, actually it's very easy to detect in an interview if somebody's done a bit of research on a website, they've sort of got the, the superficial understanding of the organisation and they're able to regurgitate that versus somebody who's a really committed, passionate student of the industry who really takes time to understand the dynamics and sort of reads tech, you know, technology articles or whatever or even blogs on the subject for, for fun. You know, there's a big difference in that and it's very easy to detect and it speaks to your why, right? What you believe in and what what excites you. Definitely. Um, I get a lot of comments that I, I don't do many of these with the eggs, so s small commercial break, I have an egg. Should it's we a do a quick egg pun? Egg pun? Egg pun rat battle. A um, pun battle. Okay. Egg pun battle. Uh, excellent. Exactly. <laughs> nice. This is a hard board. I think it's a hard boiled egg. I'm going to put it down again. I thought you were yoking when you brought that in. Oh, no, nice. Okay. Uh, I think I win. On the, uh, yeah. <laughs> A, a shell of my former self <laughs> on this stuff. Okay, uh, let's switch. The, the, uh, the interesting title of your podcast uh, panel is Greater Than 11%, and I want to um, latch on to that and talk to you about your experience. The 11% is a, a reference to the fact that 11% of creative directors in the UK are women. Uh, you're a woman in the uh, marketing industry. I'd love to um, uh, understand from your perspective what that's like, where you see the challenges and what the opportunities are. Yeah, um, so yeah, exactly as you said, the Greater Than 11% panel, or Greater Than 11% was started by brilliant woman called Renee Von Sutherland, who I met through the Wackel Future Leaders Award. And she is a creative director. I make no comments about being a creative director, um, but she, she is a creative director and she started this journey of Greater Than 11%, which is a weekly podcast which interviews women um, who, to, to, to give exposure to different, a variety of like creative experiences and roles, because you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And so she interviews everyone from um, set designers to strategists to um, uh, choreographers, like she has, she really explores all areas of the creative um, disciplines to shine a light on those, the creative experiences of those women. Um, and I join on a monthly basis and we have more of a discussion panel show um, and bring in some brilliant guests and, and talk about some great topics. So um, in terms of my experience, I would say I'm more comfortable talking about my experience in the context of, you know, being a, in the, a woman in the workplace, a non-white female in the workplace, as opposed to specifically within marketing or within creative industries, because mm -hmm. I don't think I'm a true creative. Um, but my overriding, my overriding kind of feeling would be, my experience has been um, positive in that I think the best, some of the best mentors I've had of have been male. I think there are some myths that we need to bust around. If you if you need a mentor, they have to like look and sound exactly like you. Um, but at the same time. The reality as well is like I think it's quite exhausting. Um, we hear constantly these statistics that it's going to take like 208 years to get gender parity at a global level. We hear statistics like 
only 11% of women are, only 11% of creative directors in the UK are female. We constantly hear negative statistics about the pay gap uh, within companies. And at the same time, I think the generation that I'm in is like, we've read Lean In, we're, to steal a friend of mine's uh, phrase, like, we're leaning in so hard, we're practically horizontal at this point. Yeah. And it still feels like nothing is changing. It still doesn't feel like there is enough representation of like senior women at the executive level. I think there's still, it's still only, I think, eight, is it 8% of the FTSE 250, which have female CEOs? Or maybe less than that. Advantage. It's like, it's it's embarrassingly low. Also founders too, I, I think yeah. uh, in, in the venture capital world, only 2% of capital goes to female founders. Yes. 2%. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. So, so I think the, exha the exhaustion actually comes from when you feel like you're working so hard to try and drive change, be that leader, be that kind of role model, ask for the promotions, ask for the stretched experiences. And you're, then you're also surrounded by these kind of quite depressing statistics. And I guess within, within the kind of world that we're familiar with, there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion. We don't necessarily see uh, results changing quick enough or strongly enough. Now, I also understand why that is. I understand that organisations have to protect all of their employees and need to need to think about um, all of, you know, isn't need to think about all of the people that work there and you can't just like boot 50% of your exec off because they the, don't happen to be female. And also I think diversity needs to be thought of as, as much beyond gender, right? We need to think about neurodiversity, Absolutely. we need to think about um, different levels of ability, physical ability, we need to think about um, uh, LGBTQ+, plus as in, in, within the context of diversity. I'm not just saying this is like a male-female thing, but even at the male-female split it's pretty it's pretty depressing yeah. and, and appalling. So I guess what I feel at the moment is um, through Marketing Academy, through Weckle, I am part of some brilliant communities of women who have really um, helped be a support network for the sheer exhaustion that you feel when you are tr throwing everything that you have at trying to be that person, trying to lean in, trying to go for those things. And, and actually sometimes you kind of feel like you're running at a closed door. Mm -hmm. Um, regardless of like whether people are bought into it or not, there is I think there are organisational structures that need to be broken. There are some rules that need to be broken and rewritten to make uh, to really make a significant difference, as opposed to these like incremental tiny changes. I think a, a, an example of it is um, approach to non-exec directorships and senior appointments for women. Let's completely decouple experience. Um, from tenure. If you think about the average life cycle of a company now, um, I think it's gone from something like, I'm going to get this wrong, I think from something like four years to 18 months is the kind of life cycle of a business in terms of like refresh of people, yeah. strategies off. So over a relatively short amount of time, an individual who's maybe worked in a startup or a scale-up may have a significant amount of experience. Mm. Yet we still go to market asking for between for 15 years of experience. Yeah. We still appoint non-exec directors who have been, who which is very like title or tenure bound. I would love to see some businesses putting 
um, people on their boards from the brilliant communities like the Marketing Academy, from Wackle, like intentionally going out and saying, you don't have this experience, but looking you're actually a, we're looking yeah. for difference. Well, that's the perspective. I, I completely agree with that. And, uh, you know, we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion as though it's a, um, as though it's a sort of social uh, exercise. And of course it is at, at, at one level, but you know, sitting where we sit in a, a technology company that's changing so quickly, if you, if you hire a narrow band of thought, to your point around neurodiversity, uh, you get a narrow band of thinking and a narrow band of innovation, and um, you know, eventually you're obsolete. Uh, so diversity in that sense is, is much more about um, driving innovation in a very thoughtful way. And to do that, you need to see the world through multiple different uh, eyes. Mm. Uh, gender is one of them, but there are lots of other different, yeah. different flavors. I completely yeah. agree. And you know, I think a really excellent example recently uh, is eMarketer's Digital Trends Report for 2020. Every single person interviewed in, the, in their report was a white man, or it was a man, and I think the majority was uh, were white. Right. So the whole, so for the whole of digital trends for the year ahead, the only experts that were sourced were men for their view on the industry for the year ahead. That's crazy. Right? So uh, a brilliant CEO of Agency Liberty, which you know, Alex Go. Yes. Within, I think, about six hours, she had emailed 50 women within the industry, and over the weekend they put together a digital trends report from women in the industry. Good so on you, Alex. Good for you, Alex. Well done. Thank you for being the catalyst and for showing these organisations that it's not difficult to find expertise yeah. in. It's not difficult to find female expertise. You know, the question I ask is like, who? How did that happen? Right? Rather, it's not about blame. It's thinking, what's what is the norm? What are the norms within that organisation that somebody wouldn't look at that and question it before the point it gets published? Yeah. I agree with you on the diversity of thought and thinking about diversity beyond gender. I really want to make sure that we don't use that as an excuse not to focus on gender because, after all, half the world is female. I agree. And I agree. Um, so I, and my personal view on it is, you know, I. Don't, I'm not hugely involved in the um, diversity, equity and inclusion like work streams internally, but the way that I want to make that contribution is by being generous with my time, always spending time to coach and champion other women around me. If people ask to have coffee or mentoring coaching, I'll always give my time, try and do the podcast. And it's actually, for me, it's about action, not talking about it, not inspiration, not strategies. It's about being like, you know, live shine theory tell tell your female colleagues and male colleagues like why they're remarkable don't recognize your unconscious bias right just did an i am remarkable session the other day when another female colleague or male colleague is speaking up in a meeting and talking about their achievement celebrate them don't find a way to undermine them because that is what's kind of holding everybody back and you know we know from research that women and men don't like women who promote themselves internally, who talk about their achievements and accomplishments internally. And women as much as men, if not more. Yeah. Women, I think, are le less likely to get the same, if not less, like promotion and pay rises under a female manager than a male manager. So it's systemic. Um, in terms of the solution, I, I think it's more, than, it's more than kind of gesturing and superficial stuff. It's potentially more uh, aggressive 
you know, targets. If you, if you don't measure it, you don't treasure it. So how do we start measuring it? And some people are going to lose from that. Some people are going to lose from it, and that is unfortunate, but also have perhaps enjoyed that level of privilege for a long time. Sam, uh, Conniff, we referenced earlier, kind of what he talks about how, you know, there, there's probably a population of uh, people who need to lean out <laughs> and give people space to rise up, take these positions yeah. and uh, kind of unleash their brilliance upon the world. Break some China. Well, yeah. it's, uh, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to uh, celebrate your brilliance. <laughs> Uh, there's probably some people watching or listening who are thinking about a career in marketing or in strategy. What advice would you give them? Um, just before we move on to that, I also just like to say I think you're a brilliant champion and an ally oh. for women and un underrepresented groups. You spend such a big proportion of your time and give so generously um, with your time and open your network up to people um to try and drive diversity within the creative thank and our you. industry so thank i think you. thank you for being such a massive <laughs> thank you for being such a, a massive ally right we all carry with us a level of privilege um and i think the quicker we can get to a point where we understand our privilege within the broader ecosystem whether it's socioeconomic your race your gender your uh, neurodiversity your sexuality the quicker you can get to a point of thinking, how can I use my privileged situation, the fact that we're sitting here, the fact that we're able to do this podcast, whatever it might be, how can we open doors and help other people? Um, so, yeah, I think, and, and this is obviously part of why you're doing this podcast, so I think yes. it's brilliant. Your Thank question you. was, um, your question what was advice? like, what advice? Um, gosh, it's, if I'm honest, it's difficult for me to credibly feel like I can give advice because something I feel it's important to emphasise is it's so easy to, like, see people's LinkedIn profiles and hear the awards and think that they have their shit together. Because I don't, and I don't know the answer. And I think it's important to be honest about it. You know, like, I've had a, I've been having my own kind of um, mental health struggles over the last few months, and I think it's important to talk about it because otherwise people just see the Instagram, LinkedIn award side and don't see the bit that is, that takes its toll kind of emotionally. So I find it slightly difficult to give, feel like I'm in a, position where I can give advice to others because I don't particularly feel like I'm kind of winning at life but um, some great advice that I like to think about or often draw on one is is from you actually we've talked about it a lot but you know how do you it's better to be kind than it is to be right that is often useful to turn inwards on yourself um, personally I think I set very high standards for myself and others around me in terms of work and Maybe just relaxing on that, being a bit kinder yeah, to yourself, yeah. dialing it back, um, is a kind of way to step forward and do that. Um, so yeah, better to be kind than right. You know, for me, like leading with kindness rather than competence, I think is another kind of variation of that that I got, um, which is useful because it's, it allowed, the reason it was important for me is coming from consulting, which as you know is quite male dominated, um, or was at least kind of five years ago. Um, there's like a bit of a corporate veneer that you feel like you have to put on in that environment. I was even at a conference yesterday and I was like, I kind of immediately just like felt myself like stiffen up a little bit. And it, it actually takes practice to work out, kind of to really think about who you are, what your values are and how you want that to come across. 
I want to, like, my values are really aligned to what I talked about in terms of change. Like, I want to spark joy for people. I want to be more pyro. I want to try and break rules and pioneer things. And But I also want to be vulnerable. And I try to live that in everything that I do. So I can't emphasise enough how important it is to put in the work on being able to really clearly articulate your values. It will stand you in such good stead because even, like, applying for jobs that we talked about earlier... Instead of thinking, like, can I do these things? Well, of course you can do those things. Like, everyone can do anything if you work hard enough at it. We, like, do these things align to my values? Like, will I, like, do these things align to my values? Yes or no? How much can I use my strengths within this role that I'm going for? It's a more useful way to frame it. And also allows you to just have honest conversations. I think, like, we probably had a chat, or there were definitely internal Google interviews that I've had where I said... These are my super superpowers. There'll be there's no one else that you'll find that'll be better at doing these things. But here are my blind spots. And if you feel like you need these things more than you need these, then I'm not the right person for right. you. Yeah. It's so liberating to be able to talk about that, right? Rather than be like kind of what we can be as ex consultants, like yeah. anything to anyone. Experts to everyone. Well, you certainly exactly. sparked joy in me and continue to do so. <laughs> I really Thanks. appreciate you sharing your story and your wisdom. Crystal and for everything else you do. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me, Craig. Handshake. I know, it's informal.